My name is David Summerfleck. For over 20 years, I worked as a digital marketing agency project manager and consultant where I helped business owners go from failure and ruin to reinvesting profits. Now I'm interviewing other experts and professionals to find out what makes them tick and get their thoughts on how you can learn from their experiences and revitalize your life professionally and personally. We cover topics as wide ranging as digital marketing, business innovation, culture, global trends, and ways we can all better channel our creativity. So let's join the discussion. Hi there. Thank you for tuning in to the David Summerfleck podcast today. My guest today is Mickey Desai. Mickey is a podcast producer, director, editor. He hosts the nonprofit Snapcast podcast and another podcast called The Thing About Cars, which I know absolutely zero about. <laughs> I might be able to ch change a fan belt, but that's about it. Uh, Mickey, let's start with your background and experience, if you don't mind. You're a very prolific and active podcaster. Uh, can we start with your own background and experience, uh, especially as it relates to podcasting? Because I know you started out as a director for business development for a mm -hmm. company called Tech Bridge back in 04. Then you went to Habitat Humanity, I believe. Then you did a ton of board positions. How did all of this experience drive your interest in uh, nonprofits, which for anybody listening or watching, I may call interchangeably with NPOs? Yeah, you know, it's a it's a very good question. I'm, I'm not sure I know the direct answer, except to say that, uh, you know, if we, if we look at the really big picture, my career path has gone into and out of the corporate sector, into and out of the nonprofit sector. Uh, I still occasionally consult them out to the corporate sector, uh, you know, documentation projects, things like that, technical writing. But uh, there was a distinct point in time where I, I had been working for IBM as a contractor. Okay. And uh, I was going a little bit crazy in that environment. And, uh, you know, it, it was one thing to be a technical writer for a small mom and pop shop prior to IBM where I had a solid relationship with my client and I could work with them hand in glove every day and deliver a finished product when the thing was finished. When you do it for IBM, that, that technical writing environment is very different. And I didn't have that client exposure. Um, and I was craving that as a major extrovert. I just wasn't satisfied sitting behind a PC for eight hours a day to just write about stuff that I couldn't, couldn't have decent conversations with my client about. So, you know, all my, you know, all my life, my friends have sort of been tapping me on the shoulder saying, Mickey, you should, you should be in sales. You have the personality for it. You should definitely be a salesperson. And I thought, well, you know, that's fine. But at the time I didn't really want to look after a sales bottom line. I didn't want to look after a corporate product line. Right. And, and, and I, you know, I, I wanted to do something more meaningful with my time and the nonprofit sector was it and, and fundraising and development is sales. It is marketing and sales. Um, you're selling a mission and a cause instead of a product or a service. And, um, 
And that's how I made the leap from corporate America to the nonprofit sector. Um, that's how I got into TechBridge. Uh, that's what opened the doors to Habitat and so on and so forth. And um, and then I did took this program uh, in Atlanta. And there, I think there should be something similar in every major metropolitan area. And if there's not, there should be mm. uh, something called the United Way VIP program, um, which is for us was a 10-week training program. And it took executives and interested parties and gave them a one day a week class on all the intricacies of, of what really makes for good board leadership. And, uh, you know, I was already invested in the nonprofit sector at the time, but it, I, that program helped me understand how much of a dearth of qualified leadership there is amongst nonprofits ac across our nation in general. Uh, and, and, the, and the research says that hasn't changed in 20 years. Why is um, that, do you think? You know, I'm not sure. I think that I think it could just be culturally that we don't give ourselves the time uh, to actually learn what good nonprofit practices are. And, um, you know, I, I feel like I'm on the on the cusp of making this this huge uh, sweeping generalization that we work too hard in this country. We're too profit driven and and people are. Uh, you know, more invested in the corporate script than the nonprofit script. And a lot of people don't know what nonprofit actually means. Yeah, very um, true. I mean, very yeah. true. I've, I, I was a, a, a small business mentor for several nonprofits, as you well know, because I was on your podcast mm -hmm. a few times. Yeah. Um, but there seems when I was in a nonprofit mentor, and, I, and technically, I still am for just for different nonprofits. There's a disconnect. Yeah, people don't seem to really be familiar with NPOs, or it's this concept that they don't make money, which is like, if you don't make money, how do you survive? What do you do eat sand? Right? You know, right. what do you how do you pay bills? Would you just go, you know, Yep. Kaiser Permanente is a nonprofit. Why is exactly. there why is there this huge disconnect? Right. I you know, I don't know. I think it could simply be a matter of education and unfortunate use of the word nonprofit. The word nonprofit is not a business model. Uh, you know, it is a it is a nonprofit is still a business. A nonprofit can still make money. Yeah. It's uh and as you and I both know, they simply can't share the profits with shareholders or or investors, none of that can be done in a nonprofit business in a in a five hundred one c three environment. But uh, right, they make profits, but, yeah. or or they go under. So I mean, right, they make a profit, but they reinvest the profit back into infrastructure. Which exactly, to be quite honest with you, that's what a startup should be doing. That's what scale is all yeah. about. That's how Amazon, you know, went from just selling books out of a, a garage or something to where it is now. I don't think Amazon was really showing a profit on the sheets until mm -hmm. just a few years ago. Oh, I did not know that. Yeah, I don't remember yeah. if it was how recently it was. But yeah, they, Bezos was a genius in just taking everything and just reinvesting in infrastructure, snapping up warehouses yeah. all across America. And people thought he was nuts for buying all these warehouses. Well, look what happened. Yeah. 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 So yeah, so I do think the word is possibly one of those things. It's it's kind of, and this is a poor choice. Feel free to edit this out. But uh, <laughs> I think that the term defund the police is also something that people are thinking means one thing when it actually means another. Um, yeah. 
you know, and I, I don't, I don't want to get political. I think that would be a mistake, but it's like, okay, nonprofit does not mean fail. <laughs> nonprofit does not mean no money. Uh, right. So, uh, yeah, no, yeah. I agree with you. When people say defund the police, they don't mean take away all their money and get rid of all the police. That's scare, exactly. that's scare tactics. And it's also um, exaggerating the intent. It's more exactly. about let's look at how we're funding them or let's try to have some way to train them so they don't shoot first and ask questions later. Um, and that's my politics. So if anybody doesn't like it, that's just uh, tough toenails. Let's switch <laughs> gears and talk about nonprofit business development. What, what do you see or what topics do you see that are pain points for NPO development repeatedly year in and year out that you saw, you know, years ago and you see now? Where, what are those and why do they keep coming up again? Yeah, it, it's a good question. I, it, and let me first ask, are we talking about development in terms of the actual development, the actual fundraising, or just growing the entire nonprofit? Let's do both. Okay. Uh, well, I mean, clearly you're I the, the NPO, is, yeah. you know, resource, man. I want to get your take on, I think it's, I, I like your response. I want to hear what you think. I think there are a number of answers that are all interrelated. I think it has everything to do with, um, um, revenue and uh there's something we all say that is the the um the scarcity mindset is something that plagues the nonprofit sector yeah uh you have to spend money in order to make money good people good fundraising people are clearly worth their weight in in uh, in salt um and as they say and um uh you know it stretches from that all the way to uh, the classic leadership problems for nonprofits, which is to get folks who may not know what it means to be on a board. A lot of people still operate under the assumption that you just gather once a month, vote on minutes and go home. Um, other nonprofits make a mistake of of letting the executive committee drive the agenda. And then and then the whole board comes back to simply approve of what the executive committee has dreamed up. That, that's also a colossal mistake. Um, yeah. You know, a lot of people don't treat their nonprofit obligations as a second job, which is something I think that they should, uh, they should do. You know, th there are a lot of passion-driven people who like to say, oh, yeah, I volunteer with Habitat. And, uh, and that's wonderful. But uh, to, you know, to pick up a hammer and show up on a work site and, and put up a wall is one thing. To actually accept fiduciary responsibility for an organization and, uh, and help them move forward from a, uh, you know, from a spreadsheet point of view instead of from a hammer point of view is, is an entirely different game. Um, but it's something I encourage folks to do and folks, you know, how to get actively involved. I think that's, I think that's, to me, that's the hallmark of what it means to be volunteering with a nonprofit is to volunteer as a board member and accept fiduciary responsibility for it. Um, but other pain points, you know, in, in the, in the fundraising world, we used to say, and this is something I've never been able to understand. Um, so I apologize for not having that half of the answer but the average length of stay for a person in a fundraising role, a fundraising executive mm -hmm. uh, is somewhere between 18 and 20 months tops. That and, long. Uh, yeah. And, uh, and that's, that baffles me. I don't, I would like to, you know, figure out why fundraisers just don't stick around. I, I, I tend to think it has something to do with a little bit of burnout. Um, you know, I, I think that a lot of nonprofits expect fundraisers to show up with their intact Rolodex and do fundraising from it. 
Um, and, and that's not the way you go about fundraising for any nonprofit. Um, uh, you know, somewhere in there's the answer. I just don't know what the precise one is. Well, yeah, I know that a, a turnover or attrition um, is a huge factor because I, I remember working for it, maybe two, maybe three nonprofits in between working for different marketing agencies. I work in the marketing department and turnover was extremely high. And I know that uh, one of the reasons was always that pay was very low. Mm -hmm. So you're always looking for someone else who can help you pay the rent. Right. And uh, I think for the fundraisers, it's, yeah, I think it's absolutely, it's extremely stressful position because so much of the, the financial onus of the company is on your shoulders. And obviously if you don't have enough uh, coming in, then they're going to dump you and you know that. Right. So if they don't drop you, you're going to leave of your own volition and try to find some place where it's just not that heavy. Right. Um, how do you think COVID's uh, impacted the NPO ecosystem? You know, I think it's sort of the same way it's impacted the for-profit world. Uh, you know, people have had to pivot. People have had to figure out how to make their missions relevant if they can't do stuff in person. Uh, they've had to innovate and figure out how to use technology to their benefit. And, and making uh, programs, you know, work for their stakeholders. Um, uh, there are, are other nonprofits who have um, completely put their operations on hold and have scaled back their operations to, you know, focus to uh, on just on their messaging, even if they can't provide the actual mission driven activities, they are still letting people know that they're still around and that stuff will be warming back up once pandemic is, is you know, on its way out. Um, there's been a variety of responses to it. I, in my own personal circles, I have not heard of a nonprofit failing because of COVID. Um, I'm sure it has happened. I just, in my yeah. own personal circles, I haven't heard it. And, um, and, you know, people in the nonprofit sector have risen to the challenge. They've, they've, if they've innovated, they've, they've used technology to their benefit. Uh, some nonprofits are actually saying that they're actually changing their service provision model to strictly remote from now on. Um, a lot of nonprofits are saying, you know, we're going to do away with our physical office and we're never going to go back to having an actual physical presence. We can always rent a boardroom if we need one. It seems a lot um, more cost effective. It always did. Yeah. I think the, it's the irony of this is what made them open their eyes to more cost effective yeah. management approaches. If you think about it, why are you paying for this lease if you're an NPO and exactly. you're struggling and you have a cause? to support that supposedly exactly. is paramount to you. Why are you paying this lease? So so you can see everybody in their cubicles physically working in order to know they're working, just tell them to work remotely. I never could understand that. That's right. And you know, it's it's been sort of a weird silver lining to the entire COVID cloud, which is to be put in a position to to be forced to rethink how business gets conducted. On the one hand, it scared the hell out of all of us and uh, it made things really difficult. On the other hand, it has improved things for a lot of people and a lot of, lot of business entities. Yeah, I don't think it's over just because we want it to be over yet. Um, let me ask you, what's your opinion on the incubator or, I know there's another term that they use specifically for NPOs, but I'm having a senior moment. 
mm-hmm. what do you call the incubator for NPOs? I know there's there's tech stars um, that I remember getting involved with years and years ago. Um, what are some incubators that, that you may be aware of for nonprofits? And do you think that they're beneficial for the most part or are they not so much? Because yeah. my, my experience has been 50-50. Yeah. You know, my, the truth is I don't know a whole lot about them. I've not interfaced with them so much. Um, sorry about that, David. Quite all um, right. It's, uh, you know, I only know of one in Atlanta that's a, a church that incubates a nonprofit and spins it off every once in a while. They They do that sort of serially depending upon their community needs. Um, in terms of an incubator that starts nonprofits and helps them helps them grow, I'm not aware. I mean, it, it must exist. I just don't plan that circle. Okay. Um, but uh, but the ones that I've seen um, from a distance, many many years ago, I saw something like this from a distance, and it was good in that they had all these these fantastic business minds helping nonprofits shape their business plans. And every, by the way, every nonprofit needs to have a business plan, just like a for-profit business does. Thank you. And I, and I would take it a step further too and say a digital marketing plan as a part Absolutely. of that. How Absolutely. do you plan to utilize these assets? How do you plan to use your branding? But I'm sorry to interject. Go right ahead. No, it's, yeah, no, please. That's, that, that should all be in there. Uh, I've, in one of my older blog pieces, the business plan should, you know, include a fundraising feasibility study of some sort. You know, are people going to write you a check or are they just going to smile at you when you have an idea? Yeah. So at the, at the incubators I saw back in the early 2000s, um, you know, there were these great business minds that helped people uh, sharpen the way that they approached their business uh, their, and specifically their nonprofit business. And uh, I'm just sad to say that I haven't played in those circles in many years now. Are you are you at all familiar with um, the whole um, start, the whole funding approach to NPOs of getting the 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 investors coming on board and the big deep pocket donors. Do you feel that there could be cons to that? Because it seems to me that if you're going to go after corporate donorship, that you may be putting too many eggs in one basket. That's right. Uh, And in fact, it's one of the things that I assess when I'm doing the nonprofit snapshot is, uh, is to figure out if a nonprofit's revenue stream is thoroughly diversified. Um, there's a, a good horror story I like to tell um, that happened when the 2008 bubble burst and, and, and hit us all really hard. And I was working for a nonprofit at the time that had a very homogenous revenue stream. And because of the 2008 bubble bursting, that, that revenue stream all but evaporated. And within a period of six weeks, I was standing in front of that organization's board saying, you have to fire me and this other staff person. There were only two of us. And, uh, and, if, the, and if the program was going to exist, it, uh, it had better exist on volunteer help alone, which to their credit, they did that. Um, but, uh, uh, but that's why income streams need to be diversified. Every nonprofit should look at having as many slices in that fundraising pie as they can. And one of them should be corporate gifts. And the other one might be grants. A third one should definitely be individual gifts from their individual stakeholders. Um, 
uh, you know, there's there's any number of ways to look at the number of slices that go into the fundraising pie. But I would I, I strongly encourage nonprofits to not let any one slice of that pie be bigger than, say, one third of the entire volume of the pie. Yeah, I mean, if you if you flip the equation and look at it from the opposite perspective, it's similar to how you would invest. Yes, you know, exactly. I'm not going to put everything I have into into, say, uh, Tesla. Or yeah, right. what's, um, you know, if, 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 if Elon Musk s smokes another joint and says some other crazy <laughs> thing, now you're going to lose your shirt. Exactly. Um, so, so the flip side is just as important for how you're going to generate revenue. Let me ask you, when, when I was a guest on your podcast, I discussed marketing from my perspective in digital marketing. And we had one podcast where we episode I should say, where we talked about bootstrapping for free, which to me, I couldn't even understand why it's a question. Yeah. Um, why do so many, if not most, I don't want to say all, but it seems to me like most, and correct me if I'm wrong, NPOs seem to perceive marketing, especially digital marketing, as something not worth really investing to the point of ROI, where they're going to outsource it, preferably for free, you I would say 99.9% .9 of the time for free to largely inexperienced volunteers, rather than hire someone. Is it a case of you don't know what you don't know? Or is there something else to it? I think it's a little of both, you know, I spoke briefly about the scarcity mindset early on. And I think the scarcity yeah. mindset leads a lot of nonprofits to operate on a, on a constant handout basis, right? That, that they they approach the day saying, we need to get something done. Do we know anyone who can do it for free? Um, and I think that's a portion of it for many nonprofits. On the other hand, I think there are also many nonprofits who know the need to get a job done, but like you say, they may not know that, there's a certain amount of professionality and value to getting it done properly. Um, and you, you end up with a lot of people in the nonprofit sector who are, are wonderful folks that are uh, very committed to delivering their mission appointed activities, but they don't know how to run a marketing shop or they don't know really how to run a fundraising shop. Um, you know, they, they know they want to make the world a better place, but they're not familiar with all the cogs and gears that actually makes that work. So that may also be a piece of it. I hope I've answered your question. Yeah, I mean, it, it, yeah, they, I think you did. There's so many different factors. How do you feel about direct mail in regard to NPO uh, marketing? Do you feel there are advantages or disadvantages with that? That is an excellent question. And I thank you. I try, especially yeah. coming from you. That's a compliment. Because <laughs> I know you podcast so much that you know originally my yeah. thinking is oh i don't know if i can interview mickey oh come on because <laughs> i mean you're podcasting probably every day you know there's a lot of it the only reason i do that that way is because i think there are many stories to tell there are many ways to look at any any issue for nonprofits, and uh and then people will call me up and say mickey can i be a guest on the show and who am i to say no if they're if they really know what they're talking about right so I'm, I'm, I'm grateful to have that uh, abundance of content that, that comes to the Snapcast that way. But, uh, but with regard to direct mail, um, you know, I, I think digital marketing is changing the face of that. Um, 
And there's a huge question as to whether or not doing paper mailings is still a benefit to a nonprofit. I think, uh, I think right now I will say, yes, there is still a huge benefit to doing a direct mailing uh, in addition to the social media, in addition to emails and whatever else you have. Um, but you know, that the caveat there is, uh, it has to be done properly and it has to be maintained and done with some regularity and just like anything else there's people think that you should be able to mail your christmas cards out at the end of every year and that should be you know a, a, that should be an automatic revenue maker for you but the truth of the matter is direct mail and with physical paper mail takes years to build up into a viable revenue stream um and right now i think nonprofits should still do that i think they should be uh physical contact with paper mailings at least as a supplement to what you do digitally. Um, but people should get used to seeing, you know, the occasional mailing from you in their mailboxes from time to time. I think that's still not a bad thing to do. But I think your point of how long it can take to build traction, yeah. to build ROI that is in any way measurable is a really, really important point. Right. Because you could very easily be spending thousands of dollars every month or every quarter and not be seeing any at all movement on that. And that, right. if not more, I mean, depending on the size of the NPO, God help you if you're spending tens of thousands on direct right. mail every month and you're not getting any traction from it. Oh, goodness, uh, that's scary. Uh, and I'm sure there's NPOs out there doing it. Have it's you, still all about good communication though, right? I mean, you can't just write a card that says, Hey, how are you? Happy Christmas. And by the way, can we have a check? That's, that's, poor well, stewardship of your of your people yeah. right and i think it has to be an extension of your overall outreach especially with mission driven purpose driven supposedly purpose driven uh npos and you have to coordinate that in with the branding too mm -hmm. and 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 who your ideal you know consumer base is or who you're trying to attract as an as an npo mm -hmm. um what do you think would be some good ways to begin diagnosing NPO areas for improvement? If if someone were to call you up and say, Mickey, I know you got this podcast and you've been on several boards and 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 you know I think you're informed with the NPO ecosystem. How can I improve my business development in general terms, or to start off with to kickstart it? How do you begin to assess issues? <laughs> this is where I would say if you were in person, I would have to give you a hug for that question. That's just fantastic. <laughs> give me uh, a virtual one. <laughs> you got it. Okay. <laughs> but uh, that's why I invented the nonprofit snapshot, um, you know, coming out of these experiences in the in the mid 2000s to late 2000s, uh, um, the, the early 2000s is what I'm trying to say. Um, you know, I had worked for two nonprofits back to back that were flirting with failure in many different ways. And I... Um, one of them collapsed because they didn't have a diversified revenue stream. And when, when the bubble burst and the recession hit, that's when they nearly died. Uh, the next one was very much operating in an old school frame of mind. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, they hired me to help fix their development problems, but I, when they, they kept rebuffing my efforts to sit down with the board and work hand in glove with the board to comb through their Rolodexes and, and help them do outreach that way. And I thought to myself, you know, that's, that's like 80% of my job right there. And I can't do it. I'm hamstrung from the outset uh, because they won't let me talk to board members, which I thought that's just very odd. I, so, I had similar yeah. experiences. They, they would, they mm -hmm. would, did not want you to come anywhere near the board. 
Mm-hmm. I don't understand that. Uh, board should be your your very much fertile ground for fundraising and for fundraising action. Uh, but in any case, I walked away from these experiences and I made at the time what I thought was going to be a white paper, something I could publish, a blog post or a white paper or something that uh, that was a summary of all these textbook mistakes that nonprofits tend to make that keep them in a place where they're flirting with failure or keeping them in scarcity. And, uh, and instead of finishing that as a white paper, uh, that's what turned into the nonprofit snapshot, which is a micro assessment of a nonprofit's management practices. And, um, and it was my way of, of at the time, very quickly being able to sit down with three people from the nonprofit to get data from all three of them that would generate a report card that says, okay, uh, Humane Society of Atlanta, and I'm just making that up. I never did a snapshot for them. Uh, that's, you know, you guys get a B plus and here's why. And, uh, and why is divided up amongst 10 different subject matter areas. So uh, now I'm in the process of turning that assessment into an app and we should be alpha testing it sometime in June. Okay. I'll leave that one alone because you know, digital marketing <laughs> is my thing. Yes. Um, I'll just say that I think in most cases I would, I would just be a little bit leery of the whole app thing. Cause I, I don't sure. know if you need it personally. I no. think if a, if a website is responsive and features what you want it to, you may not need that. It's just right. me. Yeah. And I would clarify that, you know, the, the snapshot as a measurement only gives you the five mile view of a management practices of a nonprofit. It doesn't give you a granular look at what's going on on the ground. It doesn't do program assessments or anything like that, but it would, it would allow you to say, Oh, there are these things in our marketing realm that we could tune up on, or there are these things in our volunteer management realm that we need to shore up to reduce liability, things like that. So what it sounds like to me, actually, when you talk about it in those terms, it sounds very similar to me. And I'm sure you've seen this, but a lot of new web developers, a lot of new or small digital marketing agencies will offer like a free, you know, enter your email address, enter your website, will give you a free SEO report. Right. And usually the free SEO report doesn't really benefit you that much because it basically shows you here are some areas we found where you could make improvements. But right. unless you're already an expert in SEO, you're not going to know how to change meta tags. Right. You're not going to know how to where to go in and make these little tweaks that m- might or might not help you. But it sounds something like that where submit your information and then on the basis of your answers, we could give you uh, a report that might right. give you a kick in the pants in the right direction and help you jumpstart for a more in-depth conversation. Is that fair? Uh, not quite. It's okay. almost fair, but uh, the marketing effort changed. In the beginning, the snapshot was something that I would deliver as a service to a nonprofit. Now, in the creation of this app, I'm simply putting the tool into a consultant's toolkit so they can use it in the work with their client nonprofits. Okay. And, uh, and you know, if they license the thing for me, it's a very quick and easy licensing figure. Of, uh, um, and, uh, you know, once they license the tool for me, uh, I can coach them on how to use it. That's, that's you know, it probably won't even need it. It seems pretty intuitive. But, um, uh, but then they can, you know, use the tool to their heart's content. And if they just want to give it away for free as part of every consulting engagement they have, then that's, that's fine. Um, 
It's, that's what it's designed for. Well, let me let you plug it if you want to. Is there a way that people can test the uh, app yet? Is it in beta? It's yeah, it's about to go to alpha actually, not quite beta. So um, if they're interested, go to nonprofitsnapshot.org and use the contact us form there to get in touch with me. There's also a blog post that talks about doing the beta process or the alpha process for the for the snapshot. And there's links within that that can easily contact me. And failing all that, if somehow it's not findable, um, people can always go to Facebook and search for nonprofit snapshot. And, and I answer all my Facebook messages as well. It works just as well as email. Okay. Um, so I'm happy to tell people about the snapshot. I'm happy. To, in fact, we're looking for more testers. If people want to do some testing and uh, get into the tool and tell me what works well and what needs improving, that would be very viable. So uh, totally open the door to that if folks want to give me a shout out and become a tester. Okay. Well, I've only got about three more questions for you. Sure. So that was not to close. Uh, but I wanted to give you the opportunity to, to get that in there. I want yeah. to ask you your take on the RFP process uh, is obviously as it relates to NPOs. Mm -hmm. I kind of found the whole NPO or the whole RFP process for NPO. So for anybody listening who doesn't know, uh, an RFP is request for proposal where the nonprofit organization is saying, here's what we want. Here's how we want it done. Here are the tools we want you to use. Here is our deadline. Here's how much we'll pay. Now, tell us why we should consider you. So it's sort of like The Bachelor. I never really, I had, I'm not excited about the RFP process. I got to be honest, I never was. Do you think it's, how do you feel about it as it has been? used and then i'll let you go from there yeah i think this this may be a very short answer and my, my very short answer is i think it can unnecessarily bureaucratize the vendor selection process for a nonprofit. Um, and unless a nonprofit is large enough to warrant a more uh, objective assessment of who it is that they're going to hire people probably don't need to do an rfp process to figure out who they need to work for them Am I answering your question? Um, I Yeah, I think from one perspective and then from the flip side perspective is if you are someone from my perspective, either a small agency or a freelancer, they're looking at the RFP and they usually feel stymied by the, R, by the nonprofit organization or NPO because the like i said the rfp will say these are the tools you should use these are the goals that we have these are our problems so they're self-diagnosing their own problems right. and then telling you how long it should take you to fix it how much right. you should charge what tools you should use on and on and on right my approach to the rfp is to send a polite email and request a video conference call to do a, a discovery session, basically. Yes. And honestly, do you really want to do that for free? <laughs> you know, it, it's one of those weird things. It's like, if that's what it takes to get the job and to get in to help somebody, then yeah, I'm happy to do that for free. But uh, so, to, yeah. to, to couch that first call in terms that are actually useful to them 
and not costing me anything to produce that's that's kind of tricky yeah um so so i mean do you think the rfp process could be improved or yeah i think so i think there's at at the very least i'd like nonprofits to say we think this is what the problem is instead of we know this is what the problem is um you know just to change the phraseology on it and be open to the idea that sometimes you need to get away from the city to see the smog you know and uh and and on the one hand, you may find a, a, a person who can fix your problems in a certain amount of time, but they may not use the tools that you want. Um, right. On the other hand, you may have the person who 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 can um, who can fix the problem, but it'll take twice as long as the next guy. Uh, but the results may be better, right? I think that a certain amount of flexibility needs to be injected into the process. Um, and if folks are going to do the RFP process openly. Um, I would like to see them not become so rigid. I would like to see them to invite people to um, to put in their proposed solutions to problems. You know, maybe it would just be easier if they state, "Here's what we think the problems are. What would it take to fix them?" Uh, yeah, so. I, I think when you have an RFP, at least in the and for the most part, the traditional sense, mm-hmm. it, it seems to prolong problems than really yes. solve them. Right. Because how can I come in and take the NPO and make them such that they're on the first page of Google for some particular term or issue, but you're telling me what tools I need to use? I may have my own suite of tools. I may have my own process for discovery, but you won't let me do it. So hence the the whole RFP process seems kind of broken to me but let me ask you about your take on branding and storytelling for nonprofits where do you see branding and storytelling for NPOs when it comes to to pulling all these different parts together such as volunteer recruitment um, you know corporate sponsorship and outreach what what how do you coordinate all of that how do you bring that all together how do you prioritize that it, you know i i'm i'm not sure about the prioritization except to say that nonprofits have to tell their story they have to tell their stories with regularity and some creativity they have to tell them genuinely um and now that i've said that i think that everybody in a nonprofit has a story to tell everyone from uh, a frontline volunteer to a, a, a mission a recipient, a service recipient, uh, to your staff members who actually make programs move on a day-to-day basis. Everybody has something to contribute to that communicative agenda, uh, the communications agenda, sorry. And, uh, and the more you know how to farm that content from a, a wide place, and the more you know how to present that to your audience in a way that they can easily and quickly digest it, the easier it will be to not only improve your stewardship of those potential donors, but possibly also increase uh, revenue income from individual donors in the long run. Uh, but but everybody has a story to tell. And once you tell that story um, uh, in, in a manner that's consistent with the overall branding of the organization, and if you can do that with regularity, um, that's that's a huge piece of the communications agenda for any nonprofit. I hope I've answered your question again, David. I think so. I think so. Yeah. Uh, there's so many different ways to market the NPO, but so much of it has to be tailored for the specific one you're dealing with. 
because yeah. one one nonprofit might be able to do one, you know, might be able to accommodate this strategy or approach that you can envision for yeah. them. And then the other one may not be able to accommodate you. Right. You know, when it comes to SEO, we both know that, uh, you know, regular blog posting can be a huge boost to a nonprofit's score. Absolutely. Um, and, and so, again, you need that content. And if it means you're doing a weekly blog, then then you need weekly content and your, your readers, your, your stakeholders are going to know that you're just recycling the same article over and over again, if that's what you do, which is why I say everybody in the organization has a story to tell. And they do everyone from the executive director uh, all the way down to your interns. Um, everybody has, a, uh, has a story to tell some, some thing that hasn't been said in a, in a voice that your, that your stakeholders haven't yet heard. It's there. You just got to find it and present it. I agree totally. I would love to see an NPO that would let the board members express themselves through blog posts or right. even better, a weekly series like a, yeah. like a, um, not a sitcom, God forbid, but like a, a weekly TV show. Like you would do a, a half hour show. So for today's audience is do a 15 minute weekly video or, or something where you interview board members, right. you, you go to their neighborhoods where they grew up and, and so on and show the story and depth and really outline it like almost like a docu-series. I think people are afraid of confidentiality in some ways, and that's, you know, it depends upon the organization and the nature of their work, but I think it's critically important to put a face on every story. How important do you think authenticity is within PO? Oh my goodness, uh, hugely important, hugely important. You know, and, and we have an opportunity when you're doing the work of trying to make a community better, trying to make the world a better place. You should absolutely never lose the opportunity to just be genuine about what's happening. Yeah, and, and we need, and we need to get used to that actually. Yeah, because when you were talking about that, and I and I know it's very very true where so many NPOs are very hesitant to be forthcoming with information. And I understand totally they may have legal uh, issues to be concerned with, but the more forthcoming you can be, the more uh, you can convey to the public and certainly to your ideal preferred consumer base, the more you can kind of matriculate them or enroll them, you know, exactly. into what you do. So they, they're involved. They want to see what's going on. Like right. we all know leading up to any presidential election, what do you see more than anything? Right. You know, fundraisers, marketing events, speaking events. So to me, building an NPO, you'd probably do it the same way or a similar way, uh, very aggressive, regular uh, efforts. But that's right. Anyway, any final thoughts or anything you'd like to uh, interject before we depart this podcast? No. Uh, well, the yes. <laughs> okay, absolutely. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I keep going back to the sentence that sometimes you have to get away from the city to see the smog. And I've yeah. been saying that a lot to myself lately. And, and there are nonprofits out there who don't know they're in the smog until they have an external perspective on what they're doing. And I think it's, it's wise for nonprofits to get that perspective from an outsider from time to time and not imprison themselves with their preconceived notions of what actually make things work. People, people don't know it, but we all become prisoners of our own device if if we're not constantly vigilant about about putting up walls that we're not even aware that we're building um 
so that's one thing, you know, sometimes you have to get away from the city to see the smog. And when yeah. it comes to communications, uh, again, the, the thing that I keep harping on is do it with regularity. Um, the, the reason the Red Cross or the March of Dime gets that dollar from everybody at the end of the year is because they ask for it. So uh, don't be afraid to ask for it and don't be afraid to develop genuine relationships with your fans and your friends and to just, you know, enfranchise them, right? Bring them into your family as part of your branding efforts. And then asking for that dollar at the end of every year or at the start of every summer or whatever becomes easier if you've done your job properly. So uh, uh, those are the two things that I would leave with my audience with. Okay. Well, Mickey, let me let you get in the final word since you're the guest. Um, oh, if everybody, <laughs> if anybody, you know, tuning in wants to get in touch with you and learn more and get help from you with their struggling nonprofit or to get insights from you, how may they uh, best reach out to you? Thank you, David. Uh, the easiest way, again, is to go to nonprofitsnapshot.org. Easy to find me there. Um, contact us, form lands right in my mailbox. And if you're interested in the podcast or the work that I'm doing with the nonprofit Snapcast, that website is nonprofit Snapcast, all one word, no underlines, no dots, nonprofitsnapcast.org. And, uh, and I, uh, or LinkedIn for that matter, Mickey Desai. Find me on LinkedIn, Mickey D E S A I, uh, totally searchable. And that works also just as well as email. So I'll welcome a contact from anybody. Okay. And uh, to summarize things, or let me just say to tie things up in a knot, I am going to ask for it. So for those watching this or listening, if you've enjoyed my interview with Mickey, uh, please give us a positive review. Don't forget to subscribe. You can listen to other episodes of this podcast by going to anchor.fm slash S-O-M-E-R-F-L-E-C-K, my last name. And if you'd like to apply to be a guest, or book me to be a guest on your own podcast or submit a question for our listener question episodes, please go to dms.blue slash podcast guest. So thank you, Mickey. And thank you out there for uh, listening or watching this. And please tune into the next episode as well. Take care, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to the David Summerfleck podcast, where we discuss digital marketing trends, business innovation, global, economic, and cultural shifts, and ways we can all better challenge our creativity. If you'd like to apply to be a guest or submit a question, please go to dms.blue slash podcast guest. You can also call our Google Voice number at 424-DAVID-01 and leave an audio question as well. To learn more about topics discussed in this podcast, you can also visit dms.blue. If you enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to like it and consider subscribing. Hope to see you in our next episode. Thanks for tuning in to the David Summerfleck podcast. I really appreciate it. To learn more about the podcast or where to find episodes or how to apply to be a guest or submit a question, 
just go to www.dms.blue slash podcast. Thanks again and hope to meet you in the next episode.